this very special episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. As many of you are aware, uh, this we're in the middle of a fundraising period. We're doing our annual Signum University Webathon. And as such, we're bringing you this very special episode, uh, mystery episode of the Silmarillion <laughs> Film Project. We have no idea what we're going to discuss. <laughs> Hypothetically, it's supposed to be season three, episode three, but that, that's what last episode was supposed to be, too, and you guys saw how that went. So. <laughs> exactly. So, you anyway. never know. Yeah, yeah. This could go any direction. We might even just hijack the whole episode and talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> uh, and anyway, if you listen to the show at all, as you know, I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and with me, as always, is the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Sadly, second week in a row, or second second podcast in a row, we're missing Trish Lambert again, which is yes. very sad, but we're sure we'll have her back next time. That's what we hear. Absolutely. Okay. Hopefully she should be on tomorrow's... Um, yes, it's, yes. It's always dangerous saying tomorrow on a podcast because people are always listening to things um, uh, after not live. But That's right. Uh, on the, the next... The, we have a, another special Silmarillion film project episode coming up, Corey, but I assume you'll you'll tell us about that. I am. Uh, in addition to all the other Webathon things right now. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's, of course, the big announcement we need to talk about right away at the beginning is that tomorrow, October 14th, is the Signum University Webathon, our annual Webathon, which is the culmination of our fundraising campaign. And uh, I'm uh, really excited for our Webathon this year. We have a whole bunch of things going on. I'm going to be broadcasting for uh, at least 13, 14 hours, I'm sure. It's going to be a long, awesome, fun day. Uh, during the webathon, there are several major sessions that we're gonna that, that I'm gonna be doing. Several uh, 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 sort of three three really big, or that is three longer sessions, and then a whole bunch of uh, of really fun shorter sessions. Actually, okay, four four long sessions, and then th- uh, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of shorter ones. Um, so the long sessions that I'm doing uh, at the very beginning of the webathon, uh, which starts at noon Eastern time, um, and the best place to join us, by the way, for the webathon is on our Twitch channel. Uh, we do have a link for a uh, um, for a, a net moot for our, our webinar session, um, but it's going to be easier to accommodate more people <clears throat> through our Twitch channel. So we encourage you to use Twitch and Discord uh, if you're uh, if you're comfortable with using discord but um, give us a few years and we'll be using um uh we'll be using those new portable oculus rift classes (laughs) and we'll all be sitting in a virtual reality classroom hey that's right that's right we're on the way um (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh so right so okay so at the very beginning the first session i'm going to be doing is i'm going to be doing a special session this is designed to be a, a a supplement to the um uh a a supplement to the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, class. And we're going to be talking about Tom Bombadil because we've been doing Tom Bombadil for a couple months now in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And uh, I've, I keep referring to the poems, you know, to the old poem from which he took the character of Tom Bombadil. So I'm going to do a special session on the Tom Bombadil poems. We're going to look at the uh, early 1930s Tom Bombadil, Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem that Tolkien wrote. So we'll look at Tom Bombadil before he gets incorporated into the Fellowship of the Ring. And then we're going to look at the sequel poem that Tolkien wrote in the 60s called Bombadil Goes Boating, um, which is uh, a sequel not only uh, in the the fact that he wrote it after he wrote the Lord of the Rings, but of course it takes place uh, actually after the, uh, uh, the chronology of the Lord of the Rings as well. So 
um, we'll get like the original Tom Bombadil, and then we'll get a you know a later sequel Tom Bombadil, and sort of see how the character changes uh, in Tolkien's treatment of it. And of course, we're gonna it's a, it's you know both of them are the poetic treatments. So we're gonna have a special, really cool Tom Bombadil session at the beginning, starting at noon. Then my second big session is going to start at 4.20, and that's going to be my uh, Mythgard, my special Mythgard Academy section on Star Trek, my one-shot Star Trek uh, uh, class, where we're going to be... I, I've been doing nominations and voting all week on my social media, which I just announced the results of last night. Uh, by far the top vote-getter was the Darmok episode from The Next Generation, uh, and that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to discussing that. Um, I've actually been like walking around muttering, you know, Darmok and Jalada at Tanagra to myself for like the last two days. Uh, so that's going to be a lot. Of, th- that's going to be great. I'm also going to do uh, an episode from the original series, uh, The City on the Edge of Tomorrow. That was uh, uh, the, the biggest vote getter among the, the original series. And I really wanted to do uh, more than one. So we're going to be we're going to do a we're going to do a a next generation and an original series, not a Deep Space Nine, Dave. Sadly, conspicuously absent. <sighs> it's well, see, it just sort of shows that I wasn't following my heart. You know that I was trying to honor the 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 the, the voting system that I set up because uh, certainly Deep Space Nine is is without question my favorite of all of the Star Trek series, and I absolutely would have wanted to do. I actually think if I had to choose a single Deep Space Nine episode to do, just from my own suggestion, it would have been far beyond the stars. Uh, the one with the, um, uh, the science fiction magazine, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, that really fun episode with all of them not in makeup. And so like, yeah. you know, and it took me a fully 15 minutes to figure out who was who. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> some, some of the, some of the actors are like, who is that? <laughs> right, who is that dude? Oh, it's Quark, right? Okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's funny because I usually uh, am watching Star Trek on Netflix uh, on my phone while I'm like doing uh, chores and stuff around the house. Uh, so as long as I wasn't watching the screen, I could easily tell who was who because I recognize their voices. But uh, <laughs> but when I'm actually looking at it, I was like, wait, who is that? Oh, it's Odo. Okay, right. Um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, that's, that's the, uh, that's the, um, that's the episode I would have really been interested to talk about, uh, from Deep Space Nine, but that's fine. We're, I'm not, as I said, I'm not, I, I, I decided not to hijack it. Uh, so we're going to do the top vote getters, which were the one, uh, uh, from the original series, the edge, the, the, the city on the edge of tomorrow and, uh, the, uh, uh, Darmok, of course, which was the landslide number one winner, uh, and I think that's an, totally appropriate. An admirable, an admirable exercise of restraint for a person in a position Thank of you. power. Thank you. I appreciate that. I try. You're, you're, you're a model that everyone should be following these days, and sadly it appears no one is. <laughs> well, you know, what, what, what can one expect, really? Um, I'm always surprised when people are surprised by that, but anyway, uh, but, but that's enough of that. Anyway, so, um, the, the, anyway, so, so that's the second session I'm, I'm going to be doing is the, um, my Star Trek class. The third session I'm going to be doing will start at 9 PM. And that is a really important one. That's my, uh, my state of the university address, uh, where I'm going to be talking about Signum. I'm going to be talking about what's been going on at Signum. If you've ever been 
curious about things like, hey, so like I keep hearing there are these other things happening. It's, you know, like most people are invested in one or two of our programs, you know, sort of following along. But maybe you've heard stuff or I keep, you know, making announcements and you're like, I don't really understand. Or have you ever been confused? Are you like, wait a second, like. I thought we were the Mythgard Institute. Like, what is Signum University? What is a Mythgard Institute? How are they connected to each other? How does that work and what's going on? Have you ever been confused about those things? I'm going to be explaining exactly how Signum, what Signum is doing. But not only what Signum is doing now, I'm also going to be talking about, I'm going to be talking about money. I mean, a question that many of you are sort of too polite to ask, uh, but I want to, to, to make sure I answer is, what do we use the money for when people make donations? Like, where does your money go, actually? And why do we need so much of it uh, is another question that nobody, that everyone is too polite to ask, uh, but which I would like to answer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some stuff from our budget and, and exactly how we spend our money and, uh, and, and just kind of lay that out for you so that you can see. And then after, we'll just assume you're skimming off the top. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, I, 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 I kind of think uh, uh, I actually do get the impression that some people think that most of the money we raise goes to like support me, which is not true. Actually, uh, as I'll show people, um, not that I'm skimming, but that it's actually designed to like you know, like be my salary or something. I, I, I've gotten that impression from uh, hearing from some people. Um, well, don't disabuse that. Maybe people will stop giving. Maybe that's what they, maybe they're, <laughs> maybe they're doing it because they're like, well, someone has to make sure Corey gets fed. Right. Uh, and uh, I would argue that not giving is not the way to uh, improve the odds of that actually. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I'm going to, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to lay all that out. I'm going to, I'm going to explain that. And then I'm going to talk about where we're headed because we're in a really, really fun and exciting period of growth for Signum. We're, 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 we're making some really big leaps, uh, have been already over this past year and are going to be continuing to do so over the next year. So I'm going to be talking about that. Um, and that's going to be, uh, that's going to be, be, be really big and important. So that starts at nine. And then, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about, um, Oh, and then I'm going to do a special Lotro stream. I'm going to be taking Wigan to Isengard. So my, my guardian, who is my highest level character, just did the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, which I found really fun, though rather anticlimactic at the end. I thought the ending of the Battle of Helm's Deep in the game was super disappointing. But... Uh, uh, but I did get blown up on the wall of of of, of Helm's Deep, so that was totally worthwhile. Uh, and then we're gonna. Uh, but anyway, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna move him forward. We're gonna get get to Isengard and the Ents attack on Isengard and stuff. And I've never seen that that stuff before. So I want to get Wigan as close as I can to the Path of the Dead and get him ready to actually move forward into Gondor soon. Um, so that's what I'm gonna be doing at the very end of the day. So my, the Lotro stream will start at about 10:30 or so p.m. Eastern time. Now. So, uh, so let me get this straight you'll be taking the hobbit to isengard no i'm gonna be taking he's not a hobbit it's it would work better if it were but uh no it's like i'm taking my human guardian to isengard which is comparatively lame yeah i know it's just uh it's just not that snappy but and you're not even even going to isengard yeah well i will i will go to isengard i guess that's true i will go to isengard so one the path of the dead is cooler right and i'm gonna get to the path of the dead that's my hope is to get up to the Paths of the Dead uh, in uh, in the stream on 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 Saturday night. So when you arrive, will you discover that the way is shut? 
<laughs> yeah, well, who knows, right? If it's uh, it's quite possible uh, that that's what's going to happen. Um, I'm actually really interested to see how they how they handle that. Um, you know, sort of the has the dead like going after Aragorn, right? It's like, did he, did he leave the door open behind him? Like, how does that work? <laughs> uh, so, you know, like, the way was shut, but the dude who came through before, you know, left the door cracked, and so I guess you can come through. Wedge like something in the door. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 I'm really curious. I'm really curious to see how they how they how they handle that. You know, and it's it's a fun reminder of the different kind of adaptation demands that the the genre places. Right. I mean, you know, like thinking through an adaptation as we are um, in the direction of a in the direction of a of a TV series. It's a whole different set of parameters, right? Than doing an adaptation for video game play because you know you have to accommodate different kinds of characters and storylines. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun to look at. Now, uh, we are also doing our, our, uh, Silmarillion, uh, uh, film project spotlight during the webathon. We're doing a spotlight on, on, on a whole bunch of our different programs, uh, through Signum and Mythgard. And what we're going to be focusing on in that is really just kind of, a general reflection on some film. We're not going to be doing any sort of particular film film business in the sense of moving things along, um, you know, moving our, our, our discussions along in concrete ways. We're just going to kind of pause and uh, several of us, both uh, Nick and Marie from the um, script team and Trish and Dave and I are going to be just sort of reflecting on the project as a whole. I, th- I think that there are a lot of people who don't really get it, who don't really understand the Silmarillion Film Project and what it's about, um, and uh, and more importantly, who don't realize um, what I think it is. It's it, it has been for me a really amazing investment in the story, and I have learned so much about the Silmarillion. There's there's things, questions I never asked before, um, uh, 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 topics I never considered, whole you know, sort of passages that have really just opened up to me, uh, in ways that I never even thought about them before. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I, that I'm really interested to share, uh, and to hear from others about the kind of impact that this has had and, 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 and the way in which this project is really cool. So, um, that's what we're going to be focusing on and talking about during our Silmarillion film project spotlight, um, which is going to be happening at 7.10, scheduled for 7.10 p.m., as I recall, uh, during the webathon. So that's going, to be, that's going to be fun, too. Anyway, all this stuff is happening. Join us on the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash SignumU, at noon on Saturday, and we'll be broadcasting for the whole rest of the day. So... Uh, that is, of course, the big announcement for this week. Now, this is because the Webathon is coming up tomorrow. That means we are coming to the very end of our fundraising campaign. Um, I would like to thank everybody who's already donated. We've gotten many, many donations, and, and that's been really wonderful. Um, we're uh, we're still, as I'll be talking about on, on Saturday in the State of the University Address, still not quite at our goal. Um, uh, our goal uh, uh, for the year. So, you know, we definitely could still use help. Remember, I said this was a long time ago, of course, now in the world of uh, Silm Film Project. Okay, no, in the world of the Silm, Fi- Silm Film Project, it was yesterday, but uh, in the real world, it was three weeks ago, um, which, of course, means as you are, are as you are accustomed to, I can barely remember that it happened. But um, it, uh, I'd said at our previous uh, recording uh, that we were going to do a, that we were going to do a drawing 
a prize drawing uh, for all the people who have donated and uh, sort of dedicated that donation to the Silm Film Project. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, that's going to be for um, so. What you have to so there's still going to be time to enter. We're going to do the I'm going to do the drawing officially at the end of our uh, session here today. Um, so if we uh, if if any more donations come in during the course of our session here today, uh, all you have to do make a donation. Go to signumuniversity.org/donate and then uh, send a quick email to donate at signumu.org. If you've already made a donation and you haven't sort of you know dedicated it to one of our programs, uh, then go ahead and, and you can still just send an email to, to sort of mark that. Again, send it to donate at signumu.org. And uh, at the end of the session, I will do uh, a prize drawing and we're going to give away some some free books. And you can get, uh, we're g- I'm going to give away two uh, prizes, a, a, a second prize and a first prize or second prize uh, will be uh, one book. We'll give you a free book of your choice because uh, uh, there's a Tolkien book that you don't have. Um, be happy to uh, to get that for you and put a customized book plate in the front of it for you to uh, commemorate your participation in our fundraiser and your winning of our drawing. Um, so the other and the first the first prize will be will be two books. So we'll, we'll give you we'll, we'll give a double prize uh, to the person who uh, um, who wins the drawing. So um we're going to, so as, as I said, we're going to do that at the end. Uh, please do uh, uh, consider donating if you haven't. Uh, if you haven't yet, we really do rely very heavily on the donations of our listeners. And you know, it's been our philosophy from the very beginning. You know, we've been, you know, Dave and I have been doing podcasts like this for a long, long time now. <laughs> it's been many years. <laughs> um, by the way, Dave, uh, at uh, the Iowa Moot last week. Um, last weekend, I saw uh, Chris Stevens and Laura Burkholz. I saw the photos. Yeah, we had a little uh, Silmarillionaire uh, reunion, partial reunion out there. I was excited and and jealous. Yes, yes, that was really that was really fun. It was you know it's it's um, it's funny because I was talking with them at one point and somebody walked by and recognized their voices. You know, and they were like, 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 are you Laura? (laughs) Laura from the Silmarillion Silmarillion seminar? Um, Yeah, it was, it was cool. But not surprising. No. That one still, I think that one still remains one of the most like, like impactful um, uh, podcast series you've done. Like I still occasionally run into people like, oh yeah, I listened to to the Silmarillion (laughs) podcast. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I yeah. Think it was like from like eight years ago. <laughs> it was, yeah, 2010. Uh, really was, uh, uh, yeah. Um, no, it it, it it is. I still get emails. I mean, I still get emails from people who, you know, are like, I just listened to the Silmarillion seminar, and you know, it's totally changed the way I look at the Silmarillion. I mean, that's it's yeah, yeah. I I, I agree, um, and of course, I agree personally as well. I mean, it was the Silmarillion seminar that really changed my life. Uh, so. Uh, I mean, like that. No, no exaggeration. I mean, Signum University, in large part, came because of uh, the Silmarillion seminar. Um, so, really, all of the stuff that's happening here. <laughs> Essentially. Essentially, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much how it works. Um, anyway, so yeah, so just to uh, uh, to 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 invite you, you know, if you've been enjoying the the you know the the 
intellectual stimulation and entertainment that we've been able to provide, uh, you know, we provide over the course of the year. Uh, I ask that you would, uh, would consider making a donation, uh, to help to support our work. Um, all right. And as I said, I'll be coming back to that, uh, during the course of, uh, uh, or at the end of the, at the end of the episode, uh, here today to do our, to do our final drawing. So, all right. So here's the problem. So today we're supposed to do episode three. Now we were supposed to do episode three last time and we ended up uh, spending the whole time continuing to talk about the kinslaying and I don't apologize for that. That was excellent. I was really glad to continue thinking through the kinslaying and some other issues that came up um, that we didn't resolve. So this time we're totally ready to go to season three three episode three except here's this other problem that i had as we were as we were preparing to do that right um so the problem that i keep having now that we're the first two episodes were no-brainers uh as far as the content is concerned right i mean we needed to start with the oath uh of you know the 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 speeches by torchlight and the oath of feanor followed by the kinslaying that was pretty uh pretty open and closed. But there's been a fair bit of debate ever since about um, how the rest of the season is going to go. Um, and the problem that I keep having in, in trying to think and plan now, moving forward, episode three, I kept sort of beating my head against this in trying to prepare for today's episode was I'm still not feeling really confident about our overall outline and where exactly we're headed. And until I feel more certain about that, I'm going to have a really hard time moving forward with specific plans for episode three, because I don't really know exactly, exactly where we're headed. Um, And like I said, there's also been, there's never been real, I, I, I also feel that I'm kind of at, well, not at cross purposes, but, um, we have not achieved like-mindedness between the executive and the, you know, and our and our our our, our intellectual workers on this. You know, you guys on the discussion boards. Um, I know there's been some disquiet about the proposed outlines that we made before. Um, so I want to kind of go back and and uh, revisit this today. Um, uh, in order to in order to try to sort of resolve this. Um, Quiet! Uh, How dare they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're we're going to we're going to address this today and try to see if we can come to some sort of agreement on exactly how we are going to plan out uh, the uh, the rest of the season. And if we can achieve that, then we may indeed get to episode three today. But I, I'm not going to move forward. I'm not going to continue sort of stumbling forward in the dark here. Um, and, uh, if we can't achieve that, then we start firing people? <laughs> if we, yeah, yeah if, we can't, if we can't achieve that, we'll keep, we'll keep talking about it until uh, we, uh, uh, we beat everybody else into submission, is pretty much the plan. So, um, okay. Um, Nick is wanting to point out, by the way, that it's not him, uh, this time, uh, that's causing trouble. Uh, in fact, uh, um, so let's see. So, uh, Hakan, I see that you're here today and that's great. I really appreciate all the work that you have done on the outlines, uh, uh, which is, uh, which is great. And I want to address, this is Hakan's proposed, uh, outline and I want to kind of talk this through. 
a little bit. Um, compa- you know, doing a little comparing and contrasting to um, the overall scheme that we had had before. Um, okay. The big issue is that the big issue is time. Okay. Um, that the way that we had done the outline essentially makes the second battle of Beleriand happen before the first battle of Beleriand. Um, that didn't happen by accident. I proposed that on purpose. Uh, and, uh, I still actually support that. Um, let's look at the, the first half or so of, uh, of the, this outline of Hakan's proposed outline, uh, episodes one and two, right. Are, uh, relatively, uh, well, okay. No one is, uh, now we've already kind of moved past this in a sense in that he wanted to push the kinslaying to episode three. Um, I, I have troubles with that. I want to stick, stay with the, the, the Noldor. Um, I think I'm comfortable with how we did episode one and two, but, um, Anyway, okay. Let me just read through this here. So the the proposal was episode one, the oath, setting up the frame situation. Episode two, reactions to the oath, choices among those who didn't take the oath, Fanor and Nardanel visit to Angban leading in three to the Noldor feel the need for ships and the kinslaying. But then also in episode three, looking at young Luthien and the appearance of orcs in Beleriand. Episode four, alliance with the dwarves, Menegroth, Unin, Storm. The Green Elves come in in Episode 5 with the Ents, uh, and the Curse of Mandos happens, and then Finarfin returns and is forgiven. The planning of the Moon and Sun in Episode 6. Uh, the abandonment of Fingolfin in Episode 7, and the attack on Beleriand. Um, the, uh, uh, the, ship bur- the burning of the ships, and the beginning of the Helcaraxa passage in Episode 8. The attack on the Havens and the death of Denethor in episode nine, the death of Feanor, uh, and and more of the on the Helcaraxa. So we get the 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 second battle happening there uh, with Feanor's arrival uh, in episode ten. Um, okay. Oh, right. So I see. Marie, this is this this is an older version. That's fine. Okay, so yeah, we've moved past that with uh, episode one and two. All right, this is this is the 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 one that I found uh, to kind of slap up here. Um, apologize if this isn't the if this isn't the, your most recent version, Hakan. The big yeah, so we're discussing a straw man, even better. To even better, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, this is this seems like pretty typical executive behavior, right here. It does. <laughs> it does. I agree. I agree. It's kind of fun. Uh, it's complaining about an complaining about an outline that is in fact outdated and yeah. not even re- not even relevant. Well, it's still a lot of it is still relevant. Here's the big issue. The big issue is time, right? 
in the published Silmarillion, we follow the story of the Noldor through the darkening of Valinor, and and the rebe- then when the sh- scene is ready to shift over to Beleriand, Tolkien has that chapter where he goes backwards in time, right? And we get this meanwhile in Beleriand chapter of the Silmarillion, which goes, which which is really like in in the space of just a couple pages, does like meanwhile here's what's been happening for the last few millennia in Beleriand, right? Um, and it's it's of course, all of the Silmarillion is uh, is fairly, you know, is done from a fairly high altitude. You know, is 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 you know, the, most of the Silmarillion is written in uh, you know what I what in the History of Middle Earth series I've called the the plot summary genre. Um, uh, so we get, um, yeah. See, Marie, the reason I didn't post the most recent outline is the only one I had was the really detailed one that's like 50 pages long and it's not a pro I can't put it on a slide um but anyway so yeah that's exactly why I did that um uh, okay so I don't think we can do that we can't do that we, we have to reconcile ourselves um to not shifting back by millennia and doing you know we've just seen Morgoth in Beleriand at the end of season two, right? We got him over there. We can't shift back and be like, and now everything that's happening there is, is, is actually before Morgoth comes back. I think we've, 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 we've seen him come back. We've even seen, um, his lieutenants responding to his return at the, in that last scene, right? Cause we got, we got him being rescued, um, by Gothmog and the Balrogs from Ungoliant, right? So there's, there's absolutely no way that we can return to the pre Morgoth world of Beleriand, I think, um, unless we're going to do a, you know, some kind of like, on-screen caption, like, hundreds of years earlier, you know, this happened. And, and I think that that's, uh, I, 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 I just, I don't think that's going to work. Um, and I'm, I'm very strongly against that. Now, I realize that the consequence of that is that we're going to have to change the time sequence. We're going to have to join the, thing, the, the story in Beleriand at a late point. And I know that by the time Morgoth returns to Beleriand, a lot of the things on the Beleriand side have already happened, right? But that's exactly the... the I, I think that the only way we're going to be able to help people make sense of this, to be able to kind of wrap their minds around the story, is to tell it as a continuous narrative. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I know, I know that Hawkeye, I know you're resistant to this. I know that a bunch of people are resistant to this, but I just cannot see how it will work, um, to expect us to be able to leap backwards like that at this point, especially the ways in which, like, if we're going to be going back and forth at all with the Noldor, then, like, we're jumping forwards and backwards, and and the fact that the two timelines are different, but kind of getting closer until they sort of come together, it's one thing to have the two narratives coming together, but to have the time frame different, I just, I cannot imagine how we can possibly ask anybody who doesn't know the text really well, um, to, uh, uh, to, to, um, to really follow that at all. Um, and that's the whole point, you know, the whole point of, 
of, you know, one of the whole points of doing this is to be able to make this story accessible for people who don't know that, you know, for this to be a way to kind of open the Silmarillion story to them. And it's okay if it's different. Um, especially since we're not even talking about a major difference in some ways. There are challenges to it. There are definitely challenges to it because we have to have a, we have to greatly compress the storyline in Beleriand. Um, the way that we, you know, one way that we can do that is sort of slightly or at least implicitly kind of, uh, um, extend the Noldor narrative. Um, that is by leaving it behind for a while. Right. And see, Nick, this is exactly my, uh, one of the reasons why I have not wanted to have the two narratives integrated, right? Um, Nick, I think if I'm remembering correctly, one of the objections that you've had from the beginning is that you haven't wanted to, like, do the Noldor, leave the Noldor behind, do the, uh, then do Beleriand, and then come back to the Noldor afterwards. Um, I, uh, I really want to, um, I really want to, make it work as a continuous narrative. And I, the only, the only way I think that we can do that, um, I find it will work better if we, if, again, if we try to jump back and forth, we're going to make it even more compressed. Uh, we're going to make it even harder, uh, to, uh, to understand. Um, so anyway, um, Dave, what what are your thoughts about the chronology? Um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of um, I'm not a big fan of following the book structure and sort of having a like you know <laughs> the I, we keep making the meanwhile Valerian joke uh, and even that's like jumping back and forth between the two storylines is is pretty is already kind of um, uh, is tricky. It is tricky. Um, it's, do- it's doable. It works okay on Game of Thrones. Like it's not the worst, but but doing it with time also would be would be really disorienting. Exactly. I mean, just think of um, just think of like how confusing it is for people reading um, uh, uh, Song of Ice and Fire books when they go from Feast for Crows to Dance with Dragons, and they and they you know you get like halfway through that book before you realize that those two books are contemporaneous and occurring in parallel. You know they're, that they're not books written in sequence, right. but then there's like, but then there's this like you know, but that's for the first two thirds of that of Dance of Dragons. When you get to the last third, um, where they start reintroducing you know point of view chapters from characters that were only that were not previously in Dance of Dragons, and then you realize like, oh no, now we've caught up, and now we're now we're moving forward in time again. Like, yeah, I think we should avoid that if we're assuming that the you know if we're if we're thinking that, that the audience for this show is not a bunch of people who are who have read the books 30 times um, and will be following along closely, then I think we, we would want to avoid doing something that's going to um, uh, really confuse people. Yes. Yes, I agree. Um, now, my my objection, I'm not trying to oversimplify things here too much. Um, my my objection isn't the, the difficulty of jumping around from one plot to another. Right. I mean, the Lord of the Rings does that very well. The Lord of the Rings films did that fine. You know, there's there's there, uh, there's no problem with. But of course, the understanding, the assumption 
on in, in like the, the the way that Jackson did it in the films, I, I thought that that element of the of the Lord of the Rings films worked very well. Um, and of course, the major change that Jackson made in his presentation there from the presentation in the books, again, thinking of the chronology, right, is that he spliced them in more closely, whereas Tolkien does, you know, like all of book four, right, with Frodo. And, you know, so we get we get books, you know, once the fellowship breaks at the end of of book two in beginning of book three at the beginning of the two towers, right? We follow the rest of the company. Um, and then when we go in, when we start to book four, we go backwards in time to the beginning, uh, you know, to the, like soon after the breaking of the fellowship and continue past the, the time frame of the end of the, of, you know, at the, uh, you know, in the, at the ruins of Isengard and, 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 and immediately afterwards, which is where Tolkien ends book three, it goes past that, right, and begins to 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 move up towards the uh, uh, the the stuff that's going not going to happen until book five, right? Book five goes back a little bit in time and then pushes it forward. So they're sort of overlapping and and continuing to go. That's how the book works, and that's fine. Like that works really well in the book. But I think there's a really good reason that Peter Jackson didn't do it that way. That instead of doing it that way, he was jumping back and forth. But every time there's a jump, there is the implicit assumption that this, the things that are happening that he's showing are happening at about the same time. Um, Nick, exactly. I, that that kind of motion, the, the motion that Tolkien does, that long stretch of narrative, then moving back in time to another long stretch of narrative... It, that that I I agree, Nick. I don't think that works very well on screen at all. You have to give cues. Um, the assumption, you know, this is a. Uh, there's something to be said for, um, you know, in this in this regard. Anyway, I think back to you know even uh, Aristotle, you know, and the um, the unity of time and stuff on stage. Um, you know, the idea that people watching a play aren't, you know, watching a play or a drama are not capable of doing time jumps is kind of silly. The way in which, you know, the, the classical unities as they were, as they were talked about in like the, the, the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries is kind of stupid. But, um, of course people are capable of following that and imagining that. However, um, there is something to be said for the fact that when somebody is sitting there and watching a drama, you know, which is sort of in real time in front of them, right? Whether it's on a screen or something, there is the assumption that time is proceeding linearly, right? And that's why they, there's, when they don't do that, when, it, when, when, when a flashback is given, there's a signal for that. Like you have to signal, this is a flashback. But even when you're doing a flashback, the assumption is at some point, we're going to flashback forward and catch up to the narrative where we paused it, right? Um, I just, and of course, even with, I'm really happy with the first two episodes that we've planned, but remember, we're not even starting episode three clean. We ended episode two with the sailing of the ships out of the gate and that moment, which I love of, you know, Fanor on the deck of the ship and Fingolfin on the arch above and then, you know, exchanging this glance as, as Fanor passes out of the gates. In other words, we were saving the storm, Unin's storm, for the beginning of episode three. We were going to start with that. We can't possibly have the first ten minutes of episode three happen after the kinslaying, and then 
a quarter of the way through episode three or a fifth of the way or whatever be like, uh, now going back several centuries, right? I, I just, I mean, again, we, we can say that, um, but I, I just, um, I think, I don't, I don't, uh, I really don't like that. I'm not a big fan of that progression at all. Um, I want to, I mean, I really think that we should, we should maintain our momentum. Well, let's just think about this more for a little second here. What, um, what are the consequences? What are the consequences? Apart from having to change stuff, right? Concerning which, like adaptation, you do that, right? What has to happen in order for us to present a continuous narrative, to be jumping from the storm uh, the storm of Uinen, um after the kinslaying over to Middle-earth and what's going on in Middle-earth, right? In order to, to, ha- to shift the scene to Beleriand contemporaneously and still tell the story that we want to tell. What do we have to do? What, is the, what kinds of challenges would we have to overcome in order to do that? Right. Um, okay, good. So Marie says, one thing is dwarves will arrive and Menegroth will be built after Morgoth's return, which makes that all very reactionary. Yes, yes. And Marie, I'm fine with that. Um, that actually seems to me like kind of a good thing, actually. Um, to s- I mean, we do lose those, you know, those years in which orcs are running around and destroying things in Beleriand. And, you know, we lose the fact that when the Noldor come, it looks like, you know, things look like they were going straight downhill in Beleriand, and then the Noldor come and deliver them. Except, I don't think we actually have to lose that at all. I think we can still have the arrival of the Noldor seem like a deliverance, essentially. Um, uh, I think we can be fine with that. Um, no, Hakan, why would we have to skip moving to Menegroth? I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand why we have to, why we can't do that. Why can't we do that at the beginning? Why can't that be near the start? What before that do we have to do even? The move to Menegroth. um, I mean, again, obviously it it involves a compression of the book timeline. Yeah, it does. But I I don't see what we lose necessarily by doing that. Um, yeah, um, Marie, yes, episode three still can be Days of Peace. It absolutely can, because Morgoth has just returned, right? And he's pretty far away, and none of the, you know, nothing has happened down there yet. Um, So we absolutely can begin episode three with Days of Peace. The beginning of episode three can show us sort of a glimpse of how things have been peacefully in the past, right? Um, And uh, it does mean that we, that Menegroth has to, if we want to show Menegroth being built, you know, I mean, I, Maybe we can do, but I don't, again, I don't see why we have to, why we have to, uh, uh, make Menegroth have happened before. Um, the choice there, it seems to me is, do we want Menegroth to be, 
peaceful or not peaceful, right? That is to say, do we want Menegroth to be, to, do we want to present Menegroth as the thing that was built as like the, this sort of, during the time of peace, right? Um, during the, the, you know, I, I, yeah. Hakan, I know we lose the Tolkien timeline. I know it. I know it. But I don't think, I think we are going to derail things if we just try to be slavish to Tolkien's timeline. I think that the, the question is not, or rather, and this I think is a super important point when thinking about adaptation. If our first if the first thing we're doing is always trying to preserve exactly how things are presented in the book, that's how a lot of bad adaptations come about. We need to instead be thinking bigger picture, not leaving Tolkien's story behind, but rather how can we be true to the story that Tolkien is saying in a way that fits well the f- the 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 frame in which we're doing it the medium in which we're doing it right and i do think that this kind of continuous narrative is something that's going to be really important it's something that is going to make this much much easier uh uh to handle it's going to make this seem like a more consistent story all the way through and so the how, how the how the foot's uh, the the shoes on the other foot now Right? I feel like, <clears throat> well, no, it's not true. We've we've never been the, the we we were yeah. okay. Maybe me. We were never <laughs> the kind that complained about complained horribly about um, Peter Jackson changing things from the book. I think we just complained about the things that we thought really were dumb or didn't work. But um, but it is sort of interesting being in the position of defending, like you know, uh, having to make make lots of cha- big changes to Tolkien's story. Well, not the story so much, but like the you know to to the to the to the um, you know to the piece of art that Tolkien created in order to adapt it to a different medium. Well, that's so, it. Uh, I just think I think that's very funny and ironic. We're at, we're having this conversation and and uh, and we're on the side of like, oh no, we need to make these changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, exactly. I mean, here's how. And honestly, this is. I, I think this is in in a sense where I where I differ, for, or at least I, it seems like I differ from uh, a lot of the film adaptation stuff. I'm not saying like, hey, let's go off on our own and tell our own different story. What I'm saying is, this is the question that we need to like. Instead of saying, let's like map out the events in the order in which you know Tolkien told them, in the timeline in which Tolkien presented, and figure out a way to make that work in our story. Instead of instead of thinking about it like that, what I want to do is say, let's look at the story that Tolkien told. What are the essential elements of that story? What is Tolkien conveying in that story that he's telling? And then how can we convey that in our story? Right? How can we capture not the details, right? But the essence of the story that Tolkien is telling. Um uh yeah. Now, I agree, but both Nick and Marie are cautioning about, you know, uh, small changes that can have large repercussions later on. Absolutely. We really do uh, need to count the cost here. You know, we need to think about uh, so these these changes that we're making, and, and, and absolutely, we need to be thinking ahead. What are going to be the consequences of these things? Um, that's not a reason 
not to do it. It just talks about how it needs to be done, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, Nick, you're right. This is a repercussion of abandoning the Balerian plot earlier. I can't see how we could have done that differently, really, um, since plot-wise, I mean, what happens in... Valinor, right? The Noldor plot in Valinor is the dominant storyline, not only the dominant storyline in that epoch, right? I mean, to, to, to give equal time to Beleriand throughout the second half of season two would have been ridiculous, right? Um, and frankly, I still agree with the decision that we made there, even to, um, even to check in on Beleriand every once in a while, would have been a distraction, especially since not all that much was happening. And if we were going to depict something like, look at the things that would have been happening, right? The encounter with the dwarves, the building of Minigroth, right? The first uh, uh, wars with the orcs before Morgoth returns. If we were going to do justice to those things, right? Rather than... How could we have done justice to those things without taking up like half of the second half of season two, right? It would have taken a lot of time for us to be able to do those. It would have been something close, way closer than I would have been comfortable with, to equal billing to those things and the uh, the unrest of the Noldor in Valinor and the forging of the Silmarils and the Darkening, right? Those, I mean, even Tolkien's own narrative shows that all that stuff that happened in Beleriand is secondary. You can tell it's secondary because he spends several chapters doing the Valinor stuff, and then he's like, okay, here's a couple pages worth of, like, summary of what happened back in back in Beleriand, right? It's important for us to know that background so that when the scene does shift to Beleriand, as it does after the Darkening and the Rebellion of the Noldor, um, we need to know the context, right? But it's really just given us... Um, uh, it's really just given us for uh, uh, it's really just given us for context. Um, I, I just I will I am ready to defend that for however long, right? It's just that would not have made any sense to me at all. Um, so leaving Balerion behind and focusing on the Noldor in Valinor seems to me absolutely inevitable. If we don't put that story in the spotlight, the story of how the Noldor fell, the story of how the Silmarils were made, uh, the story of Morgoth's relationship with them and, and you know, the fall of Feanor and the fall of Morgoth and the, and the Darkening. That's where the focus really needed to be, which means when we come back to Beleriand, we have this choice. We either have to go back in time or we have to move forward. And I think that we can, that we can do that. Um, so... So, Hakan, I don't think... So, okay, now, so this is where I'm disagreeing with you, Hakan. Hakan is arguing that if we do this, <clears throat> you're having done this, right? If we're going to make the timeline contemporary, that when we return to Beleriand in episode three, we have to make a whole bunch of these things already have happened. We have to just sort of join it midstream and have Menegroth already built, the dwarves, them already in relationship with the dwarves, and the green elves already in situ there uh, in Assyrian. Why? Why? Why do we have to do that? 
yes, it's true that the only alternative is to accelerate that timeline, right? To have them meet the dwarves later chronologically than they do in the book. To have the green elves arrive later chronologically than they do. To have the first battles between them, uh, between all of those guys uh, and the orcs happen later than it does in the books. Yes, but um, that's fine. Why can't we do that? What's to stop us doing that? Especially since we have a pretty good stretch of episodes in front of us before we get back to the Noldor, right? We have at least three and maybe four episodes. Um, One of the landmarks uh, that I recall us agreeing on was episode eight for the burning the ships, right? Um, Which means the arrival of the Noldor in Beleriand, right? If that's not going to happen until episode eight, we have most of episode three and then uh, at least four, five, and six. Episode seven, you know, we probably return to the Noldor in episode seven because we need to get the we need to get the curse of Feanor in, right? You know, we need to get the curse of the Noldor, uh, the doom of Mandos. Um, and as I recall, we were going to do that uh, in episode seven. So, yeah, Nick, I agree. I don't think we lose anything thematically with the accelerated timeline. Um, the only thing, the only real challenge that I see in accelerating the timeline like that is the actual leaving time for the actual construction of Menegroth. Um But I think there are a couple um, ways that we can get around that. Um, one is Tony was suggesting before that we could have Menegroth already built or already building um, because uh, of like Millian's foresight, right? Millian could have uh, and that and that that could be explained. Even that, um, I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's uh that's something that's something that we could possibly uh that we could possibly do. I'm not I don't know. Because I don't know that Menegroth needs to be a finished product before they move in, in part. Um if their moving into Menegroth is a reaction to the you know, the arising of evil in Beleriand, the stirring of evil and uh the aggression of the orcs, especially, you know, under the direction, well, ultimately under the direction of Morgoth, but uh, under the captaincy of, of, uh, of Sauron or of, uh, you know, Bulldog or whoever, um, the, you know, the idea that the elves are going to seek shelter, that they're going to, that, you know, their first impulse is to move to a place of strength underground, that, you know, I think is fine, right? Um, they can have their place underground and they're going to be living there for a long time. So they can be like finishing it and beautifying it uh, for a long time. Um, I mean, heck, we can have, you know, this series of pre-existing caves that they move into and have the process of them transforming this, you know, subterranean shelter that they have taken for defensive purposes and transforming that into Menegroth. That can happen as, that can take as long as we need it to take, essentially. Um, yeah, uh, um, Marie says they, they could not even finish Menegroth until season four. Absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, Marie, exactly. If Meme lives there, he could easily have started it. So there would be caverns. There would be places uh, for them to be. Um, so I think that that's, um, uh, that's 
uh, th- that that seems to me to work uh, perfectly fine. So I'm not I'm not concerned about the time because it's that's one of the great things about Menegroth, right? We're not talking about a structure. We're not talking about like a fortress that needs to be built from the ground up, um, you know, so that it, it, you know we have to allow that kind of time for completion. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Okay. Um, so how would we want to, how would we want to map this out then? Um, we have the meeting with the dwarves. Um, we can still have the meeting with the dwarves. The dwarves are new allies. And keep in mind, in some ways, I'm, I like better presenting the relationship with the dwarves, um, in a more compressed timeline because their relationship with the dwarves is still uncertain and shaky. And that's actually easier to convey if they've only recently met them, actually. Um, you know, if the, if that alliance is a new and, uh, and uncertain thing, then, um, then I think that we can, uh, uh, we can certainly have, uh, we can convey that really well, uh, and, and, and quite simply, um, by, uh, um, by having this be a, a, a new and a new and uncertain alliance. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony, I agree that, um, Tony, uh, is reminding us that, uh, uh, Dairon is like, a an exposition uh, <laughs> machine just waiting to be used essentially um, uh, because we can have him telling tales and, and singing songs, right. Uh, in order to establish things that have happened in the past. And that is actually uh, kind of cunning Tony to be able to do any, and to fill in any time gaps and uh, also introduce the character of Dairon, right. Who's never really been introduced before. Uh, so that's, um, uh, that's, I think, uh, I think fine. Um, yeah. Hakan, I'm, I, 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 Hakan says I'm slowly talking him around here. He's coming to terms with it. Um, yeah, I, really, my goal is not to lose any of the story. Um, and, and here's what I would say about the whole question of the first and second battle. Here's the question I would ask. If Tolkien didn't call them that, why would we care? Right. We care about that sequence because Tolkien calls them the first and second battle. And by golly, we want to make sure that they're in that order because he's called them the first and second battle. And it seems like an arbitrary and strange change to shift that around. But again, step aside from that for a minute. What's important about it? What matters about that is a story. And that's the thing we want to make sure that we preserve. Right. I think what matters about that is... For the big picture of the Silmarillion story, the the importance of that of those battles that occur in Beleriand prior to the arrival of the Noldor is the effect that the arrival of the Noldor has. The way in which this sets up the Noldor coming in as deliverers. There there are a couple different elements to this, right? First, the impression 
uh, that misapprehension, well, not apprehension, or that 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 misconstrual, right? Um, that understandable um, misunderstanding that the Noldor are have been sent over by the Valar, right? That the 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 elves of Beleriand are in desperate need of help, and here come the Noldor, and they look like the they look like the knights in shining armor, right, riding to their rescue. That's one element of the story that's really important, right? And then of course we have lots of sort of heavy irony about that. Um, at the same time, there's also the justification of the arrogance of many of the Noldor later on, in particular the sons of Feanor, right? Um, who were going to be able to swagger and say to Thingol things like, you know, um, when when Thingol is starting to say, like, you know, all of this realm I, you know, I claim for my own, even Fingolfin is going to be like a king as he who can hold his own, right? I mean... Uh, the orcs were ruling in Beleriand when we showed up, so let's not talk about that, right? Let's not let's not be so particular. Um, all of those dynamics are a, are a, a major element, right? A major consequence <clears throat> of the fact <clears throat> the fact that Beleriand was practically enemy occupied territory when the Noldor arrived. Um, <clears throat> so, can we capture that? I think it would be important not to lose that. That seems to me a crucial element of the story, and obviously such great potential uh, for playing on that um, and for, for, for doing a lot with that, both in the relationship with the, of the people of the Sindar to the Noldor, as well as sort of the big picture. Totally, I think we can keep that, right? Um, and I, uh, I don't think, <clears throat> by making those two battles closer together, I don't think we're going to lose anything by hastening the plot line of the, you know, by, by compressing it. I don't think we need to lose that either. Um, and, uh, I don't think, let's see, how can I still don't think the green elves need to have arrived earlier? They can arrive late as well. Um, in fact, here's a, here's a, a story projection concept Hakan, about that. What if we use the green elves almost as a kind of a foil for the Noldor, right? That is, we show the Sindar in trouble. Um, They're already threatened. And when they're threatened and finding themselves in need of allies, right, they meet the dwarves, right? And the dwarves look like they might be allies, but they're not sure about the dwarves. Right, um, they have reasons to be uh, uh, uncertain as to whether or not the dwarves are going to be uh, real good allies. Right, so, um, so what else do they have? Well, they have <clears throat> geared in at the havens, right? But they're kind of separated from each other, right? The Sindar and Doriath and, and uh, Círdan at the Havens, and both of them are kind of focused on uh, trying to defend their territory, right? And then more elves arrive <clears throat> with Ents, right? Elves with Ent reinforcements. Uh, so the green elves come in, and these are friends, right? These are people who can or at least should be friends, especially compared to the dwarves, right? We can be much more confident. Um, we can be much more confident in them, um, but it doesn't work out, right? The green elves get slaughtered, and Denethor dies. Then the Noldor come, right? But the Noldor can come right, can come right after that. Um, and uh, so, so do, do, do you see what I mean about having the green elves be a foil? Like, we get, before the 
influx of elves from Valinor who come in and turn the, you know, change the complexion of the war in any case, it looks like that's going to happen when the green elves come in from the east, right? Except that doesn't really pan, <clears throat> pan out. And it also enables, um, it also enables, um, it, it, it enables us to show the difference, right? Um, one of those challenges is how do you show on screen some of those less, um, uh, I don't know what, less corporeal, less outwardly manifested things. Just like the fact that the like the, the difference between the Moraquendi and the Calaquendi, right? Um, and especially in their relationships with the orcs, <clears throat> how can we show that you know the orcs are no match for the for the Noldor when you know the orcs were already slaughtering uh, the green elves, for instance? Um, you know, so there's a there's a lot that we can uh, that we can do there. Yeah, Hakan, see, no, I'm totally willing to make the first battle happen first. I'm not, I'm not at all insisting that the first battle should happen second. Uh, I'm 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 totally willing to do that. I'm just saying we need to compress the timeline. That's the thing that I kind of, that I'm ready to insist on is that we compress the timeline and we keep it consistent. We don't. I don't see any need to ask our viewers to make that chronological leap backwards. Um, it's going to be confusing. It's certainly going to confuse the Angband situation because, remember, as we've been saying, the Angband plot is is crucial in season three because it is the Angband plot that connects both of them together. The Noldor and the Sindar plots are not really going to collide. Um, they're going to come close, right? Uh, we're going to have them in parallel, but they're not going to meet each other. They might, you know, we're talking about in the final episode having Thingol hear about the Noldor, right? But that's the closest they're going to get to actually colliding. Um, the, 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 the common denominator between the two storylines is the Angband plot. And if we mess with the Angband plot. You know, if we go backwards and say, like, okay, so you remember seeing, uh, you know, Gothmog rescuing Morgoth? Well, this is before that. It's going to be really hard. Okay. So, we do the, we do the, we do the compression. We've got some time. We've got some time for, uh, up through the first battle to happen. Now, let me explain, Hawk, on the rationale behind my pushing the first battle back later on. And that is simply... To allow, since the stories, as I said, essentially the Noldor story and the Sindar story, as they're unfolding in season three, are unfolding in parallel all the way through. Again, they're not gonna they're not gonna connect. Um, they're not gonna join together into one story until season four. Right? We're not gonna get interactions between them until season four. The death of Denethor is the big tragedy at the end of that timeline. Right? What I didn't want to do, you know, Nick, thinking of what you were suggesting before. Um, uh, what I didn't want to do is abandon the Beleriand again. <laughs> I didn't want to abandon the Sindar a second time, um, which there is a serious danger of our doing. If we, if we, uh, you know, if we fire all of our rounds prior to the burning of the ships, Right. If we whether we do the burning of the ships in eight or whether we push it back to nine, Hakan, as I know you've suggested, um, even if we push it back to nine, right? What then? We have the death of Denethor happen before. Then what happens with the Sindar between episode nine and episode thirteen? What's left for them to do? Are we just leaving them behind again? 
like we did in season two. And I don't want to, I'd rather not do that. That's why my first impulse was to spread out this. If we think of the Sindar story in season three as starting with the return of Morgoth and the sort of the ending of the kind of quasi like, you know, new Quivienin sort of, uh, peaceful, if not Edenic, peaceful at least existence uh, of the Sindar. At the beginning of the season, that ends, right? And we get rumblings of danger and for, and foretellings of danger by by Melian. So we're we need to seek shelter and a place of strength, right? So we we go to Menegroth, we establish relationships uh, with the dwarves, though though those are possibly shaky. The uh, uh, you know, the, the danger arrives, the green elves arrive, battle breaks out, the green elves are slaughtered. Um, then what? Then what? What do we have after that left? Because to me, the battle in which Denethor dies seems like the culmination. That's when uh, things are blackest, right? The green elves uh, have been killed and they've retreated and Doriath is besieged, right? Doriath is besieged and uh, the Phallus is besieged. That's kind of the end, isn't it, of the Sindar timeline until it joins with the Noldors timeline in season four, right? Um, so if we finish that story prior to the second battle, right, prior to Feanor's landing on the beaches and fighting the orcs, then how are we not just going to be leaving them behind and then spending the entire last four, five, six episodes on the arrival of the Noldor, the the battles in the north, and ultimately the and the Helcaraxa and the arrival of Fingolfin? That's a, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not a defensible way to do it. And if we decide that that's how we want to do it, I mean, we can kind of leave Beleriand hanging again. Uh, you know, Southern Beleriand hanging again and just come back to them in the beginning of season four being like, meanwhile, still besieged, right? Um, but I uh, I don't like it. Even if we return to them at the end, right? Um, after it's been three or four episodes, even if we return to them at the end and have the... Um, and have the... Uh, The like messengers coming through have we can have some change, some alteration to the siege. Maybe when the Noldor return, maybe the southern armies pull back as a consequence, right? Uh, so the siege is broken, the, the siege breaks, and they don't know why. And then they hear they've been delivered, right? And this, and so the, the final message to Thingle is a message of hope. But that's just a visit, right? And we would have left them behind, what, four episodes ago, five episodes ago? Um, I uh I mean maybe we can contrive something. Suggestions so Hakan and Marie are suggesting <clears throat> we can s- sort of divide up the siege of <clears throat> Doriath from the attacks on Cirdan at the Havens um and uh we can get uh, Maria suggesting the girdle coming into play uh, and spiders attacking. We talked about uh, uh, Shelob uh, and the other, uh, the other children of Ungoliant. Um, and, you know, the 
what's going to end with the the girdle and with them up in uh, Arid Gorgoroth. Right? Yes. We could do that. But here's what I'm not convinced of. I'm not convinced that it... Here's how I want to think about it. Again, I want to think about the Sindar story. The season three Sindar story. And I want the, the shape of that to be a good and satis- an interesting and satisfying shape. You know? I would like it to have a culmination. My favorite culmination is the death of Denethor and the slaughtering of the Green Elves. Um, that the end, not quite the very end, right, but what looks like the end of the story of the Elves of Beleriand is going to be in the... is in defeat, right? Um, so... If we end with a girdle and the spiders, what's the what's the story? Where does that story? Where is the story going? Where does it end? Where does it? What's the what's the target? What's the purpose of that story? I want to make sure that we get the shape of that story clear, and then I would like to space it out and integrate it with the story of the Noldor appropriately so that that works and they they sort of march together and enable us to, to jump back and forth in ways that are going to be that are going to be sensible if we're having the betrayal of Fingolfin and the burning of the ships and the uh, and the death of Feanor and, and all that stuff and we're interspersing that with meanwhile siege still going on right <clears throat> or I don't know. I mean, again, I don't want to belittle it. What I'm trying to say is this is why I wanted to move that the main battle and the death of Denethor until later in the season so that we could just just thinking of the Sindar arc. Um, Yeah, so. okay. Tony says it's the story of settling into a siege and resolve to resist but resigned to probable defeat. Okay. So, Tony, you're saying the story, the Sindar story should be, uh, what, fighting the long defeat, shall we say? Right, Kelborn's already there, so I guess we can start fighting the long defeat. Um, I can accept that. That seems to me... Appropriate. Um, so, what are the stages? What are the stages in the, the, the slightly shorter defeat, Nick? Exactly. Right. Well, but who knows, right? I mean, who knows how long the defeat might have taken had the Noldor not come? Um, once the Girdle of Melian went up, what's it, it's going to take? What's going to take Morgoth coming against them in person, isn't it? Uh, to uh, overcome Doriath with the Girdle in place. Um, yeah, yeah. And Tony, exactly. If the arrival of the Noldor, the the arrival of the Noldor should look like a U-catastrophe, certainly. 
to the Sindar. Absolutely, that's just what we want. We want the end of their story to be uh, like the eagles are coming, right? Except it's the Noldor. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. Um, Okay. So let's make a list. Let's make a list. What are the what are the events? What are the major events in the Sindar storyline? In the order in which we're doing you know, with this admittedly compressed timeline, what needs to happen? We start off in peace, right? Our last glimpse of the peace of Beleriand. Morgoth has returned, but they don't know it yet. Right, Morgoth hasn't done anything outward yet. None of his, none of his, his, his people have come back, have 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 come out. Right, so we start with them in peace. What's the first thing that happens? Meet the dwarves, meet the orcs, build Menegroth, meet the green elves. Marie says, "Okay, right, dwarves, Menegroth, fell beasts. Right, okay, good. So they have to meet the do dwarves. To, do we need to plant any character moments?" Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of... I mean, so I think episode three, the long-delayed episode three, has got to be... Pri- I mean, one of the primary purposes of episode three has to be reintroducing and introducing characters, right? I mean, because these are people where... Like Luthien, we've has, wasn't there before, right? We last saw Thingol and Melian, right, as they were emerging from the thicket, right, in which they had been uh, uh, frozen. So um, uh, we need to introduce Luthien, we need to introduce Dairon. We need to reestablish Beleg and uh, 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 Mablung. It would be great uh, to sort of see Celeborn hanging around again. Um, so there's a lot that needs to be established um, about the whole Sindar. We need to, we need to, you know, maybe even recall Kyrdan and what he's up to. Maybe that doesn't have to happen in episode three, but that has to happen pretty early. So, so okay, so we need to reestablish um, we need to reest- to reestablish our characters and to establish what's going on. Um, by the way, Hakan, I, I really love the way in your uh, projected story, the, the longer version, not this outline, um, I really love the, 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 the prominence of the character of Aeol. I, I, I want to I include Aeol a lot more, too. Um, I really like a lot of the stuff that you were doing with Aeol in your, in your longer outlines. That stuff is great. Um, and especially, I love the idea of having Aeol be a really important element in the interaction between the elves and the dwarves. Um, Because, see, that's a story that Tolkien tells, right? I mean, he tells us that Aeol had this relationship with the dwarves, and he has had, presumably, for a long time. Um, We know that most of the elves don't have a close relationship with the dwarves, right? But Aeol, differently among the rest of the elves, pursues that relationship. Well, so, yeah, why not have that be a factor in these initial the initial establishment of relations. So having Ale be involved in that um, and connecting that with the story of the the price that he's going to pay, right, how he gives uh, Unglachel, you know, ultimately Turin's sword, um, 
uh, how Aeol gives that sword to Thingol for permission to live in Nan Elmoth. Uh, that I think is, uh, um, it's really great to, to integrate that, you know, so to, to integrate that now to integrate, um, the, uh, uh, the, his relationship with the dwarves. I, I, I really like having ALB, not necessarily a central character, but a fairly prominent character, especially early on here. He can kind of vanish in a sense once the fighting starts. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think having him involved is really, is really cool. Um, uh, Tony thinks maybe he could also fight and be heroic in the early battles. I'm wondering, Tony, I would think that he would stay. Think about the, the webs and snares that he sets for Arathel eventually and Nan Elmoth, right? It's like he creates a little mini girdle of his own, but of a different quality, right? Around Nan Elmoth compared to around the rest of Doriath. Um, it would be interesting to see how he, um, yeah. So yeah, how can I agree that he would hide? Um, would we make there be, we should make there be a specific moment though, right? When he withdraws. So maybe he is a more active player earlier on. Um, I'm torn. On the one hand, it would be kind of fun to have Aeol just be, you know, sort of a jerk from day one. And we've already met Aeol, right? He was involved in the debate back at Quivien and, um, and he's, you know, he's like the dude who's always stomping out <laughs> in a, in a tizzy, right? That's like Aeol's job. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I, I think it would be cool to see him like maybe fighting alongside the dwarves in an early skirmish, um, to show like the potential that he could be an important ally that he could really help, but then have him alienated and withdraw. And so he's, you know, not part of, not part of the, the story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I don't want to get too involved in details. We'll do that. You know, when we actually like get back to discussing the episodes, um, but okay. So we have, the peace, and the peace needs to get broken. Which should happen first, meeting the orcs or meeting the dwarves? That is to say, bigger picture, the question is, do we want them to meet the dwarves after they are already in threat? Like, do they meet the dwarves peacefully and just sort of establish peaceful relationships just because? Or are they already in threat? Have they already seen the orcs and are afraid of what's coming, Right. Um, how, um, pointedly, right, are they looking around for, uh, how pointedly are they looking around for allies, right? Um, I think, yeah, yeah, um, Tony, I agree, I, do, I mean, as, as I'm sort of talking myself around to here, um, they can yeah, be, I like that suggestion. yeah, yeah, the, the, <clears throat> right, the, the actively looking for allies, when they well, in, find the dwarves, in particular, giving Aeol the role—that's um, Tony's suggestion. Yeah, give Aeol the role of bringing the dwarves in for an, specifically for an alliance, and that 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 gives him a more central position and a more active role. Yes, yes, yeah, I like that. I like that, and then again, gives us a sense of they're losing something if Aeol 
when Ale withdraws himself, which I think he's going to do when Thingol claims Unglachel, right? I mean, he's I think Ale is not going to be best pleased that he has to give, um, you know, that he has to give that sword to Thingol. Um, I think he's going to grudge that, and that's what's going to lead to the falling out. Um, but uh, yeah, now Mike says, uh, you know, allies. Who in the world are they expecting to find? <clears throat> no, but that's the point, Mike. Is that it's um, it's not that they're thinking like, okay, we need to ally ourselves with some of the other people of, of which there are not, but rather they keep having these meetings, right? I mean, if you think about it, there are, the, there are three stages, right? They're in danger. They meet the dwarves. Hey, look, wow, allies. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Hey, look, green elves. Okay, now we're really cooking with gas, right? Oh, except, except we're not. And then the Noldor catastrophe, right? Um, which, of course, is also going to be turn out to be turn out to be somewhat ambivalent, right? Uh, as uh, as as allies as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Rickle is wondering how much time we can give them. Well, first of all, Rickle, I'm, I'm not sure they're going to need that much time because, on the one hand. Um, that is Angband, I don't think is going to need that much time because I do think the story really begins. We'll ha- we'll, we'll begin with a kind of background, right? Introduction to characters and stuff. It, episode three needn't be action packed, right? Um, necessarily because we're reintroducing folks. Um, but something does need to, need to happen. And I'm totally, f- I think that that thing that happens should be an encounter with the orcs, right? So, um, uh, so they they uh, right. oh good yeah Tony exactly thinking about later they're going to meet uh, men right yeah so because uh, that that really is it's one of the trends of things that happens right these people that come in and uh, and uh, the forming of of these alliances is uh, um, is a big deal right and then Tony of course then you get the you get the the uh, the betrayal of men right at the near knife and everything so okay all right um, so that's clear. Meeting the orcs, there's reestablishment. Meeting orcs, is uh, establishing relations. Meeting the dwarves, establishing relations with the dwarves. When does Menengroth come in there with the dwarves? In the context of the dwarves, that was what we originally were talking about, and uh, displacing meme, um, and uh, uh, starting meme on his big uh, grievance, and then what comes next? The arrival of the Green Elves? No. There should be a bigger attack next. Um, some preliminary skirmishes. Things should start to look grim for the Sindar before the Green Elves come in, because, again, the Green Elves can come in as a like an apparent kind of catastrophe. Um, so, yeah, Marie, I'm thinking Bulldog and the Orcs here. Um, not yet Sauron and the Spiders. Um, I like the idea that Sauron and the spiders are only um, ward offable by Melians, by the girdle of Melian. Um, there can be thinking about the Beleriand story as we're telling it now, with the emphasis being not on defeat, <clears throat> which was my first thought, but on resistance under siege, right? If that's the emphasis uh, of the Sindar story, then 
the logical culmination of the Sindar story the, uh, is the um, the girdle, right? The uh, the raising of the girdle of 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 Melian. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so we're gonna need a series of so bulldog comes down. They should lose. The Green Elves should lose a, a significant skirmish. And then the Green Elves can come and help, right? So the Green Elves come in, the Ents come in. Um, this looks like that's really going to work out. Then it doesn't. How do we balance who gets credit for appearing to win the battle in the South? Sauron or Bulldog? Or do we even have Bulldog established in rivalry to Sauron? I'm not sure that we do. <clears throat> One of my questions last time was about Bulldog, because uh, I'm still not confident in Bulldog's character. Here's my biggest concern. I like the power struggle between Gothmog and Sauron that we've established. I'm not sure I want to introduce Bulldog as a third figure in that. Especially because I don't see a different position for him to occupy. It kind of sounds like, you know, in some of the suggestions that people have been talking about Bulldog, it sounds like he's being made into basically Gothmog Jr., right? If we Because, ha- you know, we had Gothmog as the thug, you know, this is sort of brainless thug in the rule by sheer force, and Sauron is the more sort of cunning and uh, um, um, subtle, certainly, of the two of them. Um, <clears throat> but it sounds like, so what's Bulldog then? If, if we could make a genuinely third position for him to occupy in that constellation, I would be okay. But if he's merely like a sort of a surrogate Gothmog, we've already got one of those, and I don't think we need one. Rather than that, I would rather have him just be under Sauron's orders. I would just have have him be uh, sort of chief, Sauron's chief thug. Um, Let me see if I can explain this differently. Here's one possible role for Bulldog. One possible role for Bulldog is not as a leader, really, at all. Um, That is to say, not as somebody who's trying to set up his own power, but somebody who is... One of the greatest functions of Bulldog that I can see... Um, Again, big picture. Like, what's the point of him? What does he accomplish? What he could accomplish is... um, what he could accomplish is uh, uh, being the representative of the orcs, essentially. <clears throat> right? We're not going to get to know any of the orcs um, personally. Um, but he could be um, he is like the face of orcdom. Right? He is the one who illustrates the personalities of orcs. He is the one who I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like the role that they play in the mind, or, you know, for the benefit of the viewer, right? Um, 
Uh, I think... So, not having him be a rival of anybody, but instead just having him be... um, Just having him be a soldier, essentially. Um, Yes, uh, he is an orc herder, the shepherd of the goblins, says Mike. Exactly, that's his. That's his focus. He's he's chief orc, and his job is just he thinks like orcs do, right? He just wants to be like point him at something he can kill, right? In other words, he's not going to be rivaling. That would make him not the rival of Sauron, and I like that. I like that. For again, one it it simplifies. It maintains the uh the two just the 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 more simple conflict between Gothmog and, and Sauron, which as I recall when we were originally talking about the episode outline, we were working with that and having the southern front be Sauron and the northern front be Gothmog. Um which is which works out nicely because the the southern front seems to be going really well, so Sauron seems to be scoring points, and Gothmog is losing um but then he gets the the benefit right of killing Feanor, so you know on the one hand his armies are are losing their battles against the Noldor, but at least he did off Feanor, and that's good um so uh, i i i I like that. I prefer that. If we if we interject Bulldog as more of a general, I think he should be a captain, not a general. I think he should be... Uh, I think that he can be just under Sauron's command. I would want him in the south instead of in the north because it's going to be through the Sindar plotline that we're going to be introducing orcs, right? By the time the Noldor arrive in Beleriand... Um, and we get the death of, you know, the, the, the Battle of Feanor and the death of Feanor, to the viewers, orcs will already be an established concept. It's the southern frontier and the and the Sindar story that is going to be establishing orcs as characters and as a concept. Therefore, Bulldog, as, you know, the face of orcdom, should be in the south so that we can meet him there. Um, and he would be therefore under, um, uh, he should be there, <clears throat> therefore under, uh, um, under Sauron's command. <laughs> Mike says, uh, he should be movie Bolg rather than movie Azog. Yes, I think though, Mike, you know, I'm laughing just because like, movie Bolg changed so much, right? That I don't even like remember for sure who movie Bolg is anymore. Uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, so, so how do we want the progress of the war in the South to go then? Um, if we have Bulldog come down leading a troop of orcs, Right, and they defeat a bunch of the Sindar prior, to, and then the Green Elves arrive. So again, it looks like, hey, you know, it's like we get a, like an abortive view catastrophe moment. So it looks like this is going to be a great thing. Then what? Then we have Denethor killed, right? Then we have a, a a bigger battle. Bulldog comes back with reinforcements and destroys the Green Elves. Concerning which, by the way, we're going to have to take out a few Ents too, aren't we? 
it's kind of kind of going to have to happen. Um, that's going to be sad. It's going to be really tragic. I love it. Okay, that's a a, a great uh, a great uh, a great tragic moment there. Okay, so. This is what? This is going to be the high water mark for the orcs? So then what's next? What's next in our progression of events? How do the spiders come in? When do the spiders come in? The... Um... You see, this is the beginning of the quarrel of the elves with the orcs, Right? Burarum. Um, it's, uh, um, I love the opportunity to establish, like, to pave the way for references that we're, that we can make like 20 years down the road. So, um, to have moments in the battle, uh, with the green elves here, uh, the Ents and the Orcs first battle, um, which we can then sort of allude to in how the battles work out, um, you know, both at Helm's Deep and at Isengard. Um, that'll be, uh, that'll be fun. Um, when does the girdle come up? Does the girdle come up now? So the green elves have been destroyed. Does she put up the girdle? And he, okay, so Marie's suggesting that he enlists, uh, he enlists the spiders Seeing that orcs aren't going to be able to get through the girdle, he tries to bring in bigger guns, right? Uh, okay. But, hmm, but if we do that, then, uh, if we do that, when does that then that puts the girdle happening pretty early on. Again, I'm I'm worried about I'm worried about not leaving anything for the end, right? Um, are we going to be building towards a climactic moment? You know, we could have. I mean, I like the idea of the raising of the girdle coming. That should be a turning... It should look like it's all over, right? In fact, we could even show a, you know, Sauron's tactical skill, right? Um, so, he, Tony, I was thinking along the same lines that you were just suggesting here, Sauron attacking on multiple fronts. We can have Sauron deploying the orcs so that he divides up the enemy, right? Because there are three enemies. There's Cairdon and the elves at the Havens. There's uh, there's Thingol and the elves uh, in Doriath. And there's the, the new green elves that have arrived, Right. Uh, so tactically, Sauron divides them up. Oh, Wally disapproves of this theory. Oh man! Yes, he does. Okay. <laughs> no, I th- I think he agrees. That's just basically the only noise that he expresses these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the girdle raising to me seems like. I, I agree that that should be coming sort of almost in a moment of like that should be that should be uh, a form almost like a form of surrender, right? Um, certainly a surrender of the rest of the continent, right? Um, 
Yeah. Sort of a it's yes. sort of a, an admission that we can't hold we can't hold Balerion in general. Um, uh, we need to withdraw and protect ourselves. Everybody, we're going to leave everybody else to their own devices. Yeah, yeah, um, and I mean it's it's a pretty serious move because they're by by putting up the girdle, they're defending themselves, but they're practically abandoning Kyrdin in the Havens. You know, leaving them to yes. fend for themselves, they may be under the impression that the green elves have been totally wiped out. You know, they might be relieved to discover later on that not all of the green elves have died. Um, yeah, you should definitely definitely be at least partially in response to the to the slaughter of the green elves. Yeah, definitely. How does this? How do the spiders fit in? So, do the spiders then come in as Sauron's attempt at an anti girdle? Uh, you know, uh, initiative, which will fail. Does he legitimately think it will work? I don't or know. Is it more of a, or is it more of a, you know, fine, you want to shut yourselves in there and keep me out, but I'm going to make it impossible for you to leave. Right. Is it sort of a siege? I would say more of, I'm leaning more towards that, that angle of sort of a spiteful siege. Like, you right. know, sort of, he recognizes he can't get through, but, He'll, you know, but he'll be damned if he's going to leave them at, at peace. Yes. He's going to make sure that, make sure that they're, they want to lock themselves in and they're never leaving again. Yes. Yes. Uh, I would, I would, it doesn't leave much for the, for Sheila and the spiders to do. Right. Um, like I'm going to recruit these like super intimidating and scary looking creatures and then just have them kind of sit here and kind of wait and, and not do anything seems a little anticlimactic. I suppose, we, I suppose they could be involved. They could be involved in some of the earlier battles and then he redeploys them to besiege the girl. Yeah, I would kind of, I, I, I would like them to be more involved. I would like them to, I, I would like to see sort of the spite, the spiders kind of come in. Yeah. I guess the spiders, well, he approves. Um, the spiders come in as like Sauron's master stroke that nobody was expecting, right? Um, yeah, because especially if if he tries to to bring them in as a, as an anti girdle weapon and they fail, then that just kind of makes them look pointless and and weak, and we wouldn't want that. Um, what if he brings them? What if that's part of the tactical deployment, right? So that he deploys Bulldog and the orcs, and he deploys the spiders. Um, against whom? I think that we have to have Bulldog and the Orcs fighting the Green Elves and the Ents because we want to establish the Ent, um, uh, the, 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 the Ent-Orc antagonism, right? Uh, in which case, do we get the spiders attacking the Havens? What if it's spiders and werewolves? We need werewolves too. We need Draugluin and his and his brood, right? So we have an army of spiders and werewolves driving the elves of the Havens. Okay, Tony was Tony. You and I are we're, we're on the same wavelength here, Tony. Tony was thinking the same thing of um, werewolves attacking the Havens. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maria is thinking the werewolves attack the havens and the spiders attack Doriath. So, Marie, the spiders are successfully invading Doriath, 
and get repelled by Melian. Melian drives them out and establishes the girdle, and we see the spiders being driven away as the girdle sort of emerges. Yeah. That could be really cool, actually. Right? If we showed Doriath, Doriath in that case would then be like a sort of precursor or anticipation of Mirkwood, right? That is, the spiders actually come in and we see Menegroth is like surrounded by spiders, right? Um, so Me- Menegroth is besieged and, and, and we see the, 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 the forest is beginning to become corrupted and we've got, you know, the webs all over the place. And Melian, she's got to, obviously she has to sing the girdle into being, right? I mean, there's that, that, that there can't be any two ways about that. Um, so Melian, what does she like? Come out and sing, uh, and, uh, and I don't know how visually how we would do that light or something, but, um, and this sort of just like this, this ring, would just have to spread out from her, um, and have the spiders flee before it and then, and, and drive them away. Uh, I don't know how to visualize it, Marie, but I'm thinking of the, the visualization of the stable girdle doesn't have to be the same as the visualization of the making of the girdle. But that's a really dramatic moment, right? Obviously, if we have Melian do that. You know, that kind of makes me think of, Dave. It ma- it reminds me of uh, uh, what a bad job uh, Jackson did with movie Galadriel in The Hobbit. You know, and... I, 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 yeah, let's make sure we have a scene just like that. Yeah, exactly. No, my thought is, you know, Melian coming out and uh, standing against Shelob and the spiders is like Galadriel as she should have been, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is us doing it right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, good. Yeah, Zachary, I agree. Like as the as the the girdle spreads out, for, you know, as, as this this ring of light, it has to be light, right? Um, uh, sort of moves out from her. Yes. The, 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 look of the forest would change, would change. We would see the webs, uh, breaking and the, the, uh, sort of incipient corruption of the forest being healed. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love Hawkins response. He says, wait, did Peter Jackson make a Hobbit movie? Yeah. That's a perfect response, Hakan. I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of getting myself there. In fact, Hakan, I'm going one step further. I find in my own mind, not only am I, uh, as time goes on, trying to forget more and more about the Peter Jackson Hobbit film, um, but I'm more and more convincing myself in retrospect that all of our wonderful plans about the Hobbit film from Riddles in the Dark actually happened. So I'm, I'm trying to replace my memories of the actual Hobbit movies um, with the really good Hobbit movies that we planned. And, 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 I'm, and so soon I will convince myself that that's what really happened. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. Okay, I like this. That's the... That's the sort of the dramatic high point. It brings Sheila in and shows the, the, the real that, – that really puts the spiders in a great place as far as being a threat, right? Um, and, uh, and the fact that they are the ones who are moving into the central location, that they're, they're the ones actually threatening and, and looking like they could break into Menegroth itself, that shows them as you know, arguably the most powerful of the three uh, – of the three uh, 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 forces. And, oh, and Hakan, I really liked your suggestion that you were making about uh, um, the, the, the elves of the Phalas being driven out into the, 
into their ships, right? So that the, their cities are overrun um, by, uh, uh, by the werewolves and, uh, and they have to, and they're sort of, you know, standing off on their ships and that's the only thing that saves them. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, and yes, Nick, it does set up the Luthien Sauron contest later on. Um, yes, yes. Uh, in fact, Nick, of course, we can have lots, we can, this song in here, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Philip Menzies and our other composers. The song that Melian sings is going to be an important one, right? Because it has to be not identical to, but similar to the songs of power that Luthien sings later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, great. All right, I love this outline. But then, of course, we end. So it looks. Like, so it it ends with sort of a positive, but at the same time, it's not a positive, right? Uh, you know, we and we can emphasize that. You know, the fact that, uh, okay, right. So Melian has, you know, exerted her power, and Doriath has been saved, but the Green Elves weren't saved. The Phallus hasn't been saved, um, and now they're they're besieged. And so we can see the spiders on the northern borders. We can see the orcs patrolling around. We can have a troop of orcs coming in and setting fire to the phallus. We can, you know, things are still really bad. Um, uh, yeah. Um, no, yes, Nick, I think you're right. We do need to be, (laughs) as we're moving forward, we need to be thinking of a, uh, an un- campy way to sort of talk about werewolves and make, cause there are a lot of assumptions people are going to bring about werewolves. So yeah, we need to establish this is not like infectious lycanthropy, uh, <laughs> with the werewolves. Um, cause you're right. That's something we can't assume everybody's going to know. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. We do need to make sure that, um, it's clear what the werewolves are. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, we still have the Southern front at the end of the day being a victory for Sauron. He can't culminate his victory, right? He can't come through. He can't kill Thingol and Melian. He can't destroy Doriath, but he's got everything else under control, right? So he can, he can call it a win. Um, but, uh, oh yeah. Mike asks if we should have Luthien assist or accompany the girdle. Well, we'll come back to that. We'll get to these episodes in details. I don't want to get too caught up in the uh, in the in the in- intimate details of all these things. Question: Where in the Noldor timeline does the girdle happen? What episode do we want the girdle to come up in? Because it's it's going to be pretty late, right? And if we want the Sindar story to not be peaking too soon, you know, if we want it to go all the way through season three, then it needs to be towards the end. Do we parallel it with the, with the rising of the moon and the arrival of Fingolfin in episode 12? Um, yeah. Yeah. It would have to be around the time of the Noldor victories. Nick. I agree. To be after the death of Feanor, though. Um, let's see, so Nick wants Sauron in Angband again by the time of the parley. 
right? So he's coming back and he's, um, you know, coming back and bragging about his victories, right? When they have the parley with the Noldor. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, because all that's left after the girdle comes out, we're done with the Sindar story, except them hearing about the Noldor coming in. How do they hear it? Who tells them? Hey, we 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 put Kirdan on a boat, didn't we? We can move him around. Would, That's true. He's incredibly portable. He is. He is the most mobile member of our cast from Southern Beleriand here. He could sail, or at least send some of his ships sailing north. Um, you know, on reconnaissance, he will have noticed. Uh, mind, this is a great place to establish. Um, the fact that the servants of Morgoth are very leery of the sea. Right. So, yeah. So he could go north. We have Kierden witness the burning of the ships, or maybe he just comes across the wrecks of the ships. So, I'm kind of thinking he sees the the light from the burning of the ships. Ah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could always just send one of the Sindar, like Beleg or Mablung, to the north, and they could bring back the tidings. But my problem is, why? Why would they go? I mean, they don't have any reason to know that anything is happening in the north. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Marie, he would see the light... And then he would come up and he would, he would, yeah, as, as Marie says, he would find the ship graveyard, right? That would be, that would be a heartbreaking scene, right? Because surely Kierden would recognize, remember, he was always, friend, the two of them parted late at the end, right? What if he recognizes always ship? Or something you know, has some kind of intuition that this is, you know, the ship of the ships of Olway, the ships of his people. And they're destroyed. He wouldn't know how it happened, right? He certainly wouldn't know that the Noldor set fire to them themselves. He would think that some great battle was happening in the north, and he'd be right. Yeah. Um... That's true. Nick points out that they could actually get the information by interrogating... Like, uh, Belig and Mablung could get information about what's going on in the North by interrogating a captured orc. But even there, Nick, for for tidings to have gotten that far into the South by foot, even among the orcs, they... Um, news would have had to travel pretty fast. Because, I mean, if the if the raising of the girdle is happening at the same time as the... Uh, I mean, I'm mindful of, I forget who it was who was saying earlier, we can't exactly have them, you know, casting around for... Um, casting around for for 
allies, right? Because they don't know that there are, and they have no reason to think um, that there's. Uh, they they have no reason to think that there are allies in the north. Why would they suspect that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Brianna's uh, recalling Tuor's foster dad, um, uh, Anil or Anil from Mithrim. Yeah, I'm. I love bringing him in as as a character. I'd love to establish him so that when he becomes Tuor's foster dad, he's already an established character with us. I love giving him a role, but I don't think he's is he going to be in Mithrim yet. I don't know. I don't know that we want there to be elves in Mithrim. I think he's going to move there later, probably. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Sharon. It does seem to be more pathos in sort of the the northern, uh, the, the great events in the north uh, coming in through the eyes of Círdan. And especially, the thing that I really like about that most is all of the opportunities for misinterpretation, right? Um, that is, for for misunderstanding the situation. Um because there's going to be lots of misunderstanding between the Sindar and the Noldor. <clears throat> They're going to assume. <clears throat> They've got to be assumed. They've got to assume. Um, They've got to assume that the ships were burned by orcs, right? I mean, his own city has just been burned, right? So he's got to, he's got to assume that the, uh, the, he he's never going to guess the kinslaying and then the burning of the ships, right? That's going to be so far off Kyrdan's, you know, personal experience and what he would never suspect either one of those two things. So if he if he sees the light and then comes across the burned hulls of the ships, he's got to assume that that was orc work. Um, and yes, Nick, the logical conclusion is that Olwade tried to return to help them and failed. That does seem very plausible, right? And, I mean, that that does seem to be exactly what he would probably assume. Um, and so he could think that the tragedy is even bigger than it is, and then it turns... So, and then the Noldor are there, right? And that can seem... So it can seem like a sort of a miraculous turn. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, Brianna, let me explain a little bit more. Here's the reason I'm hesitant to have there be Grey Elves living in Mithrim already. Because if there are, we've got to do something with them in the Northern Front. That is, why aren't they being pounded on by Morgoth already? Right? Um, Why isn't Gothmog using them for target practice? And do we want to even go there? I don't think we do. I mean, I think for the sake of the streamlining and simplicity of our storyline, we need to have Sindar in the South, Noldor in the North at the beginning, that, like, the northern front and the northern storyline is all about the Noldor, right, and Círdan kind of viewing it from a distance, and then the southern is all about the Sindar and Thingol. If we have some of the, the Sindar living up there, then we've got to have them kicked out. I mean, we, we could do that, I suppose. That could be, you know, one of the earliest things that happens 
in like episode three or four is that like refugees from the north come down and that's how they learn about the orcs in the first place. We could do something like that, but that seems to me a little bit much, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Marie, great question. Do the Sindar know about Morgoth's return and when do they figure that out? I think they figure that out. First of all, I think Melian knows. I think Melian tells them. Um, you know, think of a, you know, Melian's talk about her, like, you know, uh, Morgoth trying to, you know, the, the, the thing that Galadriel is repeating when she talks about repelling the mind of, of Sauron. I think that Melian is going to be aware. Melian tells them. Um, and Maria, I'm thinking the context for that should be when they encounter the orcs for the first time and they come back and they're bewildered and confused and they're like, what does this mean? What is going on? In response to that, Melian says, it means that Morgoth has returned and evil has come to Beleriand, right? Boom. Um, so yeah, I, I think she, she's got to know. She's got to be aware of the fact that Morgoth is back. And that can be how they find out. Um, so I don't think we need a northern Sindar front. I would rather just keep it clean um, and and lose the Grey Elves of Mithrim. Um, you know, we can we can have them, we can establish them later. We got season four for that, right? Don't forget, we had a whole, like, half season at least of, uh, you know, the, the f- whole first half of season four is going to be a dramatic... Uh, adaptation of of Beleriand and its realms, right? So, so we got lots of time uh, to establish a uh, a, a gray elf presence uh, up in the north. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, you're right, Mike Melkor, not Morgoth. It's uh, uh it's it's um, they're not going to know the name Morgoth until they learn it from the from the Noldor. Very true. Very true. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's good. I think that works. I think that works. Okay. We'll have to, um, we still haven't fully mapped that out. Okay. So for next time, next time we're totally going to talk about episode three. That is absolutely going to happen next time. But I feel much better. I feel, I, I, I hope you guys feel better. I hope that we can all, we can all, I'm happy now. I'm happy now. I have a, cause that, this is what I was lacking. What I was lacking is the, the plot line. I did not have the plot arc of the Sindar clear in my mind. The one, there's one way though, in which I am not happy yet. And this is your job before next time, which means next week, by the way, because we're returning to the regular schedule. So our next episode will be next week on the 20th. Um, I want a list. I want an episode list, a revised episode outline list that includes this new stuff that we've been working out here today with the with the South Balerian plot line. Um, and integrates it <clears throat> with the major plot lines of the Noldor, which are which are clearer, which are simpler, right? We, there's 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 little that needs to be done uh, in, um, you know, sort of manufacturing the plot line of the of the the, the Northern Front. 
So that's what needs to happen. So I, I want a new outline that we can that we can look at at the beginning of next time and admire, and then I will be happy and peaceful in my mind, knowing where we're going, and then I will be ready to proceed forward through uh, episodes through the end of of the season, um, knowing that we have a plan and that I'm and that I'm confident in it. Um, okay. That is the plan. That's your assignment for next time. We don't we don't have much time, so I'm going to leave that with you as your only assignment for next time. Um, make a new outline like That's this. More than enough work. More than enough work uh, for next time. So very good. Okay. Um, uh, so that's what we're going to do. And then – so a lot of episode three, a lot of our discussion next time is going to be focused on um, sort of the mood, right? It's, it's going to like introducing – Doriath and introducing our characters. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna spend a lot of time next time talking about that. Um, we of course need some events, uh, but um, I'm I'm less worried about events than I am in thinking about the uh, thinking about the, the the characters and the story and the culture and the, all the all that stuff. So we'll, we'll discuss that next time as we do. Uh, as we move into episode three. And I really mean it. We are so gonna plan episode three next time. It's absolutely gonna happen. Okay, very good. Thanks, everybody. So before we go, I want to do uh, I want to do our uh, our drawings, our prize drawings to thank everybody who has been uh, who has been donating. That's been that's been awesome. So I'm going to get I've got my I've got my dice over here. I'm going to roll my dice. So our our uh, our our second prize here. So a the 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 uh, Tolkien book of your choice with custom book plate from me goes to let's see goes to Rickle Richards congratulations so you have won Tolkien book of your choice and the uh, the first prize the, the choice of two books or like one bigger and more expensive book up to you goes to Lance Lance Crimmins Excellent. Who's, 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 uh, donation just came in, uh, during class. That was awesome. Very good. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to everybody who has, uh, donated. Um, and don't forget we have, um, uh, we have our webathon tomorrow starting at noon. So come to twitch.tv slash starting tomorrow at noon. It's going to be an awesome day. Uh, just to remind you of the, the times of those big sessions that are happening. Um, we're doing the, I'm doing the Tom Bombadil class starting at noon. I'm doing the, uh, the, the Star Trek class starting at 420. Uh, we're doing our spotlight on the film film project at 7.10, and then I'm doing the uh, uh, the State of the University address at 9, followed immediately afterwards uh, by my uh, my taking Wigand to Isengard uh, Lotro stream uh, after that at about 10.30pm uh, Eastern or so. So thanks very much everybody and I will see you guys later. Thanks for listening and Godspeed. Godspeed.